Hello and welcome to Charity Chat episode 5. I'm your host Samuel Davies and I'm here as always with my colleague, friend and fellow contributor Vicky Bratherton. Hello. So today we're going to be talking to you about the very interesting and compelling and also um, debatable topic of innovation in international development. So to start off, we're going to talk to you a little bit about the history of international development. Harry S. Truman, in his inaugural speech, said, We must embark on a bold new programme for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. The old imperialism, exploitation for foreign profit, has no place in our plans. What we envisage is a programme of development based on the concept of democratic fair dealing. That was in 1949, and arguably that definitely hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> you could argue. It's interesting that it took the end of the Second World War, which obviously was genuinely a world war, to realise that, hey, do you know what? Colonialism, it's not good. Then in, tw- in 2000, the year 2000, um, the UN signed the United Nations Millennium Declaration, which, as we all know, had eight development goals to be achieved by 2015 or 2020. For those who don't know, what are those eight goals, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> they are to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger, achieve universal primary education, promote gender equality and empower women, reduce child mortality, improve maternal health, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria and other diseases, and ensure environmental sustainability. And the eighth one, I should say, is develop a global partnership for development which is the, is the ultimate one really, because without that partnership between um, those countries giving aid and support and the countries that um, need that aid and support, and also the business and NGOs and the, the beneficiaries, without that, the other seven just don't happen. So um, that's the important one, I think. Some of those are in a better place than perhaps they were 15 years ago, but there is still an awful lot of work to be done. In 2013, the UK joined a select group of countries that has reached the target of donating 0.7% of their national income on foreign aid. In the UK, that's the equivalent of £11.4 billion. That's a lot of money. Which is a lot of money indeed, absolutely. But we'll talk a little bit more about why that is slightly deceptive in a minute. I've been reading, doing a lot of reading ahead of this, Sam, because I'll be honest... Foreign aid is not one of my areas of expertise, but that's the beauty of Charity Chat. We're all learning together. Um, And I was reading an article, um, it's from September 2013 on the the BBC website. We'll put the link up on the the Charity Chat Facebook page and website. Um, But it has a lot of uh, different views from other people about should foreign aid be spent at home. Um, And one thing that I think demonstrates your point perfectly about how much the UK spends on foreign aid, um, this quote from Jonathan Tanner of the Overseas Development Institute. Um, So he says that, quick look at the numbers shows that for every £10 we spend as a country, we spend 16p on international aid. So when you add it up, we spend less in a year on aid than we do on fizzy drinks. Wow. So to the taxpayer, the amount that we pay on foreign aid could be seen as a negligible amount, yet it does a hell of a lot of good in other countries, or at least it's intended to do a lot of good. So there are some fundamental issues when we're talking about international development. If we look at international aid, for example, now here's a good quote from a, a man called Martin Drury, who's Director of Health Poverty Action, which is an NGO here in the UK. He says, the common understanding is that the UK helps Africa 
through aid, but in reality this serves as a smokescreen for the billions taken out, let's use more accurate language, it's sustained looting and we should recognise that the City of London is at the heart of the global financial system that facilitates this. So that's quite a... Um, that's a strong, strong, strong viewpoint. Strong viewpoint indeed. And I'm sure many would agree with it and many would disagree with it equally. From the same report, I think it says, well, Western countries send about $30 billion in, sorry, $30 billion in development aid to Africa every year. More than six times that amount leaves the continent, in inverted commas, mainly to the same countries providing that aid. Is it leaving to come back straight back into government bank accounts, or is it actually coming to businesses that are based in the UK? Poverty equates to powerlessness. The best way of overcoming poverty is through emancipatory social movements and civil society. And aid programmes and corporate charity are criticised of being paternalistic in their approach. And I think that's the criticism of big business. Mm. Exploiting um, the cheap labour that they and the cheap resources that they can get from those companies absolutely, countries. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean international development as a as a definition is related to the concepts of international aid, but it's distinct from it. Um, international aid, we can when we think of international aid, we should really be thinking about specifically disaster relief and humanitarian aid. Disaster, whether it's natural disaster, um, like earthquakes or, or other disasters like war and, and conflict. But international development really is a long-term, it's looking at long-term solutions to problems um, by helping developing countries create the necessary capacity uh, to provide sustainable solutions to their problems. Over the past week or so, Sam, I've been reading a really fascinating book called Poor Economics, which is um, by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo. Um, and it addresses this very issue of, you know, is foreign aid always good or are we, are we almost falling over ourselves to, to help, help people but actually going about it in the wrong way? Are we enforcing our support too heavily on the poor people of that country, i.e. do they actually want this kind of support? Is the support that we are giving in terms of, you know, helping to um, to try and improve education and um, and healthcare, are they actually doing it in the right way? Do the poor or the, of those countries actually want or need that support and is it being done in the right way? So I've been doing a bit of research about um, international charities, as we are Charity Chat, um, and those the charities that spend money on inter international development of foreign aid. Um, so to go with the, the big one first, UNICEF, in 2014, their annual revenue was $5.169 billion, um, which is a huge, uh, huge sum of money, but they do an awful lot of work in countries across the world. So 62% of that revenue came from governments worldwide. And so I think that equates to about 3.181 billion. So that was the total revenue from governments. And they spent, uh, as a charity, $4.325 billion on its development programme. And 113 million of that was on the development effectiveness. So testing, actually, the effectiveness of the development programmes they're putting in place, which is a, a really interesting point. UNICEF obviously is a world leader in international development. So they will be very, it's good to see they're very carefully monitoring actually how effective the projects they're putting in place are and they're constantly developing new new ways of su supporting people mm -hmm. in who are living in poverty across the world. Um, now they obviously do a huge breadth of work from education to health care to famine uh, relief and, and you know refu supporting refugees. Other charities um, like Save the Children, obviously their, their work focuses primarily on children, um, but they're, they're spending 
um, and their last annual accounts was three hundred eight point two million pounds um, on their on their international development activity. Oxfam forty six p in every pound is spent on their development work, and thirty three p in every pound is on their emergency response. Um, and Comic Relief spend fifty six point four million. Um, pounds on international development. So there's an awful lot of money um, going into this. Um, some of this is topped up by governments, but a lot of it is in is voluntary income as well, especially from Comic Relief. A large chunk of this is voluntary income. Um, so there is, while there's a lot of support from governments going in there, there's also a lot of individuals, companies, um, and fundraisers out there that are helping. So there's a great quote from uh, Kitty Ari on the, the document that I was talking about earlier uh, from BBC back in 2013. Uh, she, Kitty is the director of advocacy at Save the Children and she says, British Aid works. Last year saw the biggest ever fall in child deaths from preventable illnesses such as pneumonia and diarrhoea, largely driven by aid investments and vaccines in health. Since 1990 we've cut the number of children dying unnecessary deaths almost in half from 12 million, million a year to 6.9 million. No, aid is, she says, well, aid has also contributed to improving education, health, sanitation and other public services that sustain a developing economy and add to global growth. So she makes the point there that the aid has contributed to these grassroots level things, all the, ba the basic things that people need to pull themselves out of poverty, education, health and sanitation. There's a very interesting uh, article in the Guardian newspaper back in September 2015. Again, we'll put that on our website and on our Facebook page. Um, and that made the point that African governments spend £21 billion a year on debt repayments. There is criticism, you know, which we've, we've already kind of touched on, but there is criticism of governments on the one hand talking about ring-fencing large amounts of money, which they often get criticised for, and yet on the other hand, they're, in some cases, they're generating more money through a variety of different things than actually giving to those countries. Dembisa Moyo, who wrote a fantastic book called Dead Africa, um, has said a few things on this subject. So one of the things she says, the aid model has not delivered jobs, and that is what we need, which makes absolute sense. So, you know, giving aid, giving money, if that's not building jobs and creating capacity that is sustainable, then those people, that's a short-term thing, isn't it? Aid is a short-term thing, essentially. Money from rich countries has tra trapped many African nations in a cycle of corruption, slower economic growth and poverty. Cutting off the flow would be far more beneficial, and that's something that's um, received quite a lot of criticism, that statement in itself. But uh, it's a very interesting point. And then there's another book um, by Darren S. Moglu, and James A. Robinson. Uh, the book's called Why Nations Fail, and again this has got some very um, interesting points made. This book proposes freeing poor countries from institutions and sanctions from Western governments. It says governments don't like cutting their ties to dictators who open doors for international business or help their geopolitical agendas. That's interesting, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of criticism for that attitude. I think people think these people need help and we need to give them money to help lift themselves out of poverty. There's the argument that um, people want to lift themselves out of poverty. The best way to do that is through education and healthcare, but they just need that step up. They need that helping hand of aid in the interim period to do that. There's a really interesting TED Talk video from 2007 uh, by Ngozi Okonjo Iwela, who she was a Vice President of um, of the World Bank, I believe, um, and she is a, a Nigerian, um, and she spoke, you know, speaks very positively about aid and 
the intention that it has, however, by investing in business is the best way to help people in Africa she focuses particularly on Nigeria to help to help them to build their own businesses and she gives some fantastic case studies of a, a lady who started her own uh, children's clothing business and a, a lovely quote that I, I picked out of it that she says we can take charge of our own destinies if we have the will to reform so reforming um, in the means of getting rid of the corrupt governors and the politicians that are you know, taking money from aid and siphoning it off to a bank account, you know, an offshore bank account. You know, there was a huge uprising about around a politician that did just that in Nigeria, um, and people stood up against it. And I think people are starting to stand up against it, but they need the investment in businesses in their own countries mm. to help them build themselves out of poverty. I mean, we talk a lot about Africa, and I think a lot of the references we've made and the quotes we've made are, are specific to Africa, but they relate also to every everywhere else in the world where there is um, development needs and the same issues. So, for example, um, recently um, my wife introduced me to a very good documentary called The True Cost, which is about clothing industry. Mm-hmm. And in that, in all around the world where there are um, populations that are Uh, making very cheap clothing which we here in the West take very much for granted. It's so cheap because people aren't getting paid enough to live on you know and the conditions that people are going through in the developing world we are partly attributable as consumers for those um, situations that they're in because if we pay if we were paying more then they potentially would be getting more and we're, we're part of this chain and so there are things we can do and one of the things we won't touch on today but we'll have to touch on the future Fair trade is a part of development, you know, it's giving people fair prices for fair wages, for fair products, and um, and helping them to then bring themselves up positively. That's development, isn't it? Absolutely. Where there's disaster and conflict, there'll be need for donations and, and going in and helping those. And there's so many organisations here in the UK and all around the world, other NGOs that do a fantastic job of that. So we're certainly not in any way saying that aid is a bad thing at all. But just making that distinction between aid and development. And um, one of the comments that came out of this book, Why Nations Fail, is that ending aid dependency should be the goal of international development. And I think any NGO would agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, let's face most charities that exist, no matter what they do, um, their ultimate goal is to bring, bring an end to whatever it is, you know. So whether it's, you know, cancer research or they, they want to bring, see an end to cancer. International charities want to see an end to poverty. Mm. Um, that's why charities exist, to solve a problem. Um, so it's pointless just keeping pumping money into countries and, and not actually listening to the people who live in those countries and understanding what they need and want to help themselves. Mm. You know, we can, with the best will in the world, we can just keep pumping money into it, but if people, if it's going th- into the wrong thing, it's completely pointless. So, you know, there are so many charities and governments that are demanding more um, in terms of reporting back and, and assessing the effectiveness of the projects that are being put in place to try and lift people out of poverty. As we say, we need to make sure that those people that we are trying to help with foreign aid are being listened to first and foremost. And these are fundamental things that people need uh, to do that and that wouldn't have been possible without aid. So we've, we've given a brief history of uh, international development and, and aid which was kind of combined and also we've talked a little bit around the issues of international development and aid. Now the 
title of this podcast is Innovations in International Development. So that's where we're getting to now because one of the things that Computer Aid International do is actually using solar power to power recycled computers to help educate people in developing countries, um, which is incredible. I'm here today with uh, Keith Sonnet, Chief Executive of Computer Aid International, and Christina Constantino, Fundraising Manager at Computer Aid International. Welcome to Charity Chat. Oh, good morning. Thank you very much. So um, we're talking today about innovations in international development. Um, so talking about Computer Aid, what is the ethos of Computer Aid when it comes to international aid? So one of the things we're realising more and more as Computer Aid in the last five years is that we don't really associate ourselves as an aid charity. Um, what we see with technology is that um, it kind of has to respond to longer term programs which don't respond to aid in the same way that other organisations do. Um, we wouldn't want to pit ourselves against those organisations, either they do a great job and I think technology needs to be handed to institutions on the ground that can manage it programmatically and financially. So even with projects that we work on in post-crisis situations, for example within Kukuma refugee camp, we're trying to run a project there um, to set up a solar learning lab we don't call it aid, it's a post-crisis situation, it's a stable camp because obviously the communities in um, aid situations are focusing on basic needs and the last thing we want is to detract from that and try and get them to focus on technology. Um, so yeah, I think we just pit ourselves more as a development organisation. If we do work in aid, it's via larger institutions that have always worked in aid and it's to supply them rather than the communities they work with. I think we're uh, very much influenced by the work of Amati Singh and uh, the capability approach to development whereby what we seek to achieve is to enable individuals who we work with to be able to make decisions about how they want to lead their lives in ways that they have reason to value so that really emphasizes the need for development mm -hmm. not to be top down but to be bottom up and to start with the, the real needs of people so one of the challenges is how do you involve local people in the development work that they need and perceive that um, would improve their lives how does Computer Aid carry out its mission? We work uh, very much with local partners, local charities, local NGOs who are representative of their local communities. They may work in education, agriculture, um, or the health sectors, or they may be on cross-cutting themes like gender, age, young people. We rely upon them who have got closer links into their local communities uh, to develop the, the project-based and programmatic approach that we, we follow. So we develop projects in each sectors and around, uh, you know, around different themes like gender, having regard to what, um, what, what our local partners are telling us they, they need. We make sure that what they're aiming to do is in line with some of our strategic goals as computer aid, whether it's um, reaching a certain number of schools um, in Africa and Latin America. And obviously we always wanted each of our work to uh, somehow be able to contribute to the Millennium Development Goals and obviously now the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and the link between those um, development and uh, climate change issues. Um, and a big issue for us is how do we make our work sustainable? So we don't want to carry out work in a particular country, in a particular locality, um, be able to fund that work, however it's funded, and then disappear after a year or two years. Whatever we do has to be sustainable uh, moving forward and has a long-term lasting impact, which is a value to the people that we're working with. It's building capacity, um, yeah. which I suppose is a form of investment. Sure. Obviously there's investment initially in terms of time and money from ourselves and our local partners, 
but it's really building that organisation on other capacity that people need to improve their lives on an ongoing basis. Mm. So if you want to show farmers how they're going to improve their their, their, their crop yield or how they're going to pr um, improve livestock husbandry, um, it can't just be for the lifetime of the work that we do, it's got to be something they're able to develop uh, further on. And we're using technology to help um, improve the skills that people have in order to Im improve their lives. I think one of the great things about technology as well is um, it really does depend on you having good partners and we've, we're really lucky in that respect we've got great partners. Um, they tend to take ownership really quickly, they know what they want so they lead the strategy in a really big way. Our work here is really in enriched by that because we get so many ideas from our partners on the ground about how it could be used better in other ways. Um, I mean, for example, we digitised a health clinic in uh, rural Kenya and the, we had a few anticipations about how that would affect um, treatment in the area, but the reports we got back were of unexpected outcomes were just fantastic. So the doctors there said that HIV testing rates went up by 50%, for example, and the reason for that was solely because people didn't have to pay for postage anymore to send off their tests. So there's all these things you don't anticipate that you get reports back, and it enhances your monitoring and evaluation as well. You learn to look for things you wouldn't otherwise have wanted to look for as a result of technology being integrated, and it, it, I think it's really a great body of research as well to see how technology affects you know, healthcare, agriculture. We learn so much from people on the ground that we're not looking for in the first place. And this podcast is about innovations and international development and we're very much um, involved in innovate, trying to be innovative in how we use technology. And one of our, the products we developed about um, four or five years ago, which some others are sort of copying, is our Zuberbox. And the Zuberbox is a converted shipping container which is solar powered and we provide internet uh, uh, connectivity and it's set up as an e-learning centre. It can be used as a, um, as a classroom in a school that doesn't have uh, computers or electricity. It can form a community centre, it could be a farmer training centre. Um, and we provided those in uh, seven, countries, seven different countries in Africa and we're currently building one in, um, in Bogota for, um, for using Colombia with um, a, a local beneficiary, that um, a local charity that um, engages young disadvantaged people in their work through football but they also teach ICT and life skills for the 21st uh, century. Um, whilst these uh, uh, the learning centres go into very disadvantaged areas, we've never had a case where one's been uh, vandalised, uh, which is somewhat surprising. And that's because what we've tried to do is involve the community. So if it goes into a school in a, in a, in, um, a particular area of South Africa or, 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 or Zambia, it's important that the local community feels ownership of that particular um, e-learning centre. And it's not just for that school, it's not just for that single purpose, but others can use it. And so the, um, the schools where we put them in, they allow local residents to um, recharge their mobile phones. They might provide ICT training for them. If somebody wants to have an official document uh, filled in, filled out, that can be done in the uh, in the Zuba box. Um, um, in Ghana, when I visited, um, uh, it was just during the World Cup in Brazil, they'd been using it for local residents to watch Ghana play in the World Cup because it was the only source of electricity and the only source of uh, uh, how they could um, watch the games. And Ghana, like most countries, are passionate about about football. And what the uh, what the school does is to charge local residents so much money, um, they get an income from it that helps sustain the uh, maintenance of the um, of the classroom and also the internet um, internet 
connection, but it's valued by the community. And if it's valued by the community, they feel ownership of it, they want to protect it, they want to look after it, and they want to use it. So it has a, it has a wider benefits than, than just for the initial uh, people or the children or the farmers for which it was originally um, intended for. So it's having the extra unintended consequences that is just as important as the particular consequences that we were looking uh, looking to de develop when, in when initiating the project in the first place. With the uh, Zimmerbox, is it made in those countries or would it ever potentially be made in those countries? Well, uh, all the ones we um, supply so far in Africa have been made in the UK and shipped. Uh, but we made a conscious decision about a year ago that we would have them made in country as far as possible. Uh, first of all, to create employment in those countries, but also to build uh, skills um, in terms of container conversion, in terms of welding, in terms of solar uh, and um, technology. Um, and so we've um, we've been we've looked for local suppliers in different countries in which we're working uh, who would be able to make them. So the um, the box we're making in Bogota is being made completely by local uh, local suppliers under under our supervision. What challenges are posed when working in international development? From our perspective, especially in technology for development, I think with a lot of charities actually, in the networking events we've attended and conferences, we've met a lot of charities who feel the same about the fact that there's a push for deeper projects. But there's this tension between that and getting funds big enough to have to form uh, alliances between organisations and have cooperative projects. So I think there is the issue of that being, um, you know, the what what a lot of your funders want out of. Um, out of the situation and what the organisations can actually achieve with the funds available. The other thing is for us, we're, we're really impact-led at the moment, so what that means is most of our projects are two to three years ideally, and that's not even long enough in our um, in our minds. I mean, for a lot of uh, charities in the sectors you work, it would be good to have a, a ten-year kind of um, insight into what the impact has been of your work. Obviously, again, to do that, um, there's a, a push on needing more funds so a lot of our partners on the ground have recently um, highlighted the fact that to get funding you need to prove long-term impact and to get long-term impact you need more funding um, that's that's a struggle what we're finding is we're getting great funders at the moment we're getting fantastic donors who understand that um, who are funding three to five year projects which is great and allowing us to really present what the, the findings of um, what ICT integration and development means and for us it's a science you know because you, you have these variables you measure but like I said things come up after two years that you never anticipated so if we put computers in a school in Nigeria for example what we found is it's a pattern across schools that we put computers in is when they they um, haven't had electricity or internet connection they end up getting these other kind of um, they end up uh, installing electricity themselves and yeah, so the idea of unidentified outcomes. For our partners, it's the, idea, the fact that we have a timeline that we set up for the funder. It's very rigid. We ask them to be flexible, um, but it often doesn't work in that way. Obviously, your partners on the ground, if it's a university, they have um, an academic year to fulfil. So um, just keeping uh, contact with your funders and helping them to understand the changes to project timelines, I guess, is a big deal. I mean, most, um, most funders... Um Want to f whether it's a, a trust or a foundation or a corporate body that wants to carry out projects under their CSR programs, they're prepared to fund a particular project for a limited period of time. 
uh, often only a year, sometimes two, sometimes three years, the longer the better. And what we want to demonstrate, as Christina has said, is the long-term impact and how they improve themselves through, through their lives. But it's sustainability over the longer term that we were talking about earlier. And so that's usually outside of the, 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 the lifetime of the, um, of the funding that we've been granted by whoever is funding a particular project. So that's a challenge as to how do we ensure that long-term sustainability and then how do we, because we are impact-driven, want to be able to measure and monitor and evaluate that work over a longer period of time than what the funder is prepared to fund the project for. How do you feel international development will change in our lifetime? So, so is the future of international development in your eyes? Um, a big change over years in everybody now says we have to have a bottom-up approach and not a top-down approach and how do we then involve local people and I think that uh, is going to uh, continue into the future. There's obviously the nature of changes of um, in the era we work of technology um, and technology rapidly changes um, um, and particularly the use of mobile technology and mobile phones is a change in the approach to um, dealing with um, reducing poverty and improving health um, and um, improving you know, agricultural production. Um, the whole issue of how you um, hold governments to account um, can be addressed using technology and I think how technology develops will affect the way development uh, changes. But also the external challenges and I think one of the big challenges in international development is going to come through the work that will need to be done to link up the well through the 17 sustainable development goals that try to link development with the issues of climate change and unless climate change is addressed um, and nobody's really confident at this stage that uh, the international community is going to get to grips to, with it we're going to see increasing numbers of people being displaced mm. even more than they are at the moment through conflict and the international community is finding it very difficult to how governments internationally are able to um, allocate funds for international work I think will, priorities will be looked at increasingly um, in, in different ways and that will impact upon uh, charities like ourselves and others that uh, rely upon um, support in the work that we do. Mm. So I think there will be major changes over the coming 20 or so years in changes in technology, changes in the needs that people have, but also by um, external changes in terms of how the global economy is run, but also in terms of... Um, of uh, how we respond to climate change, and I think um, I mean you're going to think, you're going to mention uh, we well, have mentioned uh, Dambisa Moyo and um, her work, and obviously her, her seminal book uh, Bad Debt uh, raises important issues. I mean based upon her Zambian uh, experiences, where you know aid is important, but she argues it's created dependencies, and those dependencies actually hold the countries back. And I think the messages from people uh, like her um, are, in, increase, uh, are, are increasingly valid um, and I think it will be increasingly recognised that how do you um, change development so you don't create uh, um, dependencies in the way that uh, she describes in her book Bad Debt but you, in, but you enable those countries and the communities within them to uh, develop themselves based upon their own priorities but with the assistance of the international community rather than creating the dependencies on the funding that currently comes through aid. Keith and Christina, thank you so much for contributing to Charity Chat. Thank you. Thank you.
it's brilliant to hear that Computer Aid International are working with the people that they are there to serve. And not only are they teaching them things, but they're learning from them as well. And it, absolutely, it does sound like they're, they're allowing, to an extent, they're allowing those beneficiaries and the partners they're working with in those countries on the ground to help steer what they're doing, which makes absolute sense. And talk about innovative, I mean, these solar-powered, recycled computers, they're giving communities that may not have even had electricity the chance to access educational tools, internet communication, um, and, uh, and one of the, th you know, the things they were saying there, how you know, some of these communities are now helping to raise funds and sustainable funds through charging um, local people to come and watch football matches you know, and things like that. It's absolutely incredible. And I think sustainability and capacity building, you know, giving these to local people and, and getting those local people on board so that they're maintaining them and, uh, and making it sustainable is, is kind of the name of the game for Computer Aid International. So good for them. I think they're doing great work. That's brilliant. They are spurring entrepreneurship within the communities that they're serving. And, and it's all sustainable using you know, renewable energy and using recyclable materials. It, yeah. it ticks a lot of boxes. Well done, Computer Aid. And there are plenty of other NGOs doing great work out there as well, and we'll, um, we'll try and showcase some of them on our website. And in terms of, you know, kind of the outcomes of this podcast, you know, if you work in international development, I'm sure you've got comments for us. Please do get in touch um, through our website, charitychat.org.uk, or on our Facebook page, uh, Charity Chat Podcast. But if you're just coming to international development for the first time, hopefully this is a good overview for you. Okay, so that's. Um, I hope that's been useful to everybody. As I say, we, you know, please do keep in touch with us. Please do feedback to us, and please do let us know what you're doing to uh, help um, with international development efforts around the world. And um, go to our website, charitychat.org.uk, our Facebook page, Charity Chat Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please share this with uh, with your friends on Facebook. Help us spread the word do get in touch and, and start chatting to us. And we, we are looking for contributors. So we if are. you'd like to join Vicky and I in this endeavour, and also James and a couple of others who help behind the scenes, please do get in touch. Next month's show will be on ethics in charity. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Red Dog Music, for sponsoring our podcast kit, Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout the show and will be playing us out shortly, and RR Yard Photography, who have, been, who have provided pro bono photography for our lovely website charitychat.org.uk thanks again for listening and uh, speak to you next month bye bye bye